I think about Father's Day is that, you know, most of you, I don't, who's a father here? A couple of you? Just a few, just John. Well, one thing about Father's Day, when you become a father, these are the privileges you get to do. You get to wear the shirt that everybody hates. <laughs> and you get to tell Father's Day jokes that everybody hates. You know, has your dad got jokes that he tells and you oh, dad. Do you know those kind of jokes? My dad told me a joke that his father told him and his father told him. I won't tell it to you because my wife thinks <laughs> it's a silly joke. I'll tell it to you anyway. There's a story about three rabbits. And said, this joke is more than 100 years old. And one's called foot, one's called foot, foot, and one's called foot, foot, foot. Okay, hear that? So anyway, they're out hopping in the field, what rabbits do, jumping around, and all of a sudden they're whack. And foot, foot, and foot, 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 look around, and they see that poor foot has his foot caught in a trap. So he takes, they take poor foot to the foot doctor and... Uh, Going, he goes in the, in the room and the doc, doctor comes out and says, I'm sorry, foot, foot, and foot, 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 but poor foot has died. Oh. So the next day they're out hopping around in the field, jumping all over the place, and then he whack, and foot, 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 looks around and sees that foot, foot has got his foot caught in a trap. So he picks up and he takes foot, foot, I've got to work on this thing, he took, take foot, foot, so foot, 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 took foot, foot to the doctor, and the doctor took foot, foot into the operating theatre, and he came out and he said, I'm sorry, foot, foot, foot. He said, but foot, foot's just died. And foot, foot said, said that's terrible. I've already got one foot in the grave. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think that joke's over 100 years old. <laughs> so I always like Father's Day. I can tell that silly joke. Um, okay, tonight we're going to talk about heaven and the blessing that God has for each one of us. And I want you to open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We're going to look at heaven. We don't hear many sermons on heaven, so I'm going to give you one. And Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no sea. Then I saw John... Uh, sorry, then, then I, John, saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, adorn, uh, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he also said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to, to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And come across to chapter 22, Verse 7 and verse 20. Jesus speaking says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And verse 20 says here, He who testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's just pray and ask God to open this passage before us. Father, we just come in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this wonderful place and the blessing that's upon it. And Father God, we ask that you just share with us your word and you would hide your servant. 
that only your presence would be here and only Jesus would be seen. But the things that you've laid upon my heart, the things that you've placed in the Apostle John's heart, those things that he saw that we would see also. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As I said, this afternoon I want to speak to you about a new heaven. Although there's not much uh, uh, information given on the subject of what's called the eternal state, the book of Revelation, in fact the whole Bible, John, however, under the anointing and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, has packed so much into these closing chapters as to assure every believer that such a place exists for us. You know, the rabbis had a very interesting concept concerning what we call the eternal state or the new heaven. And this is what they said. They said that Genesis describes the first six days of creation as beginning with the morning and ending with an evening. But the seventh day does not mention an evening. It only mentions a morning. And from this they said that all other days come to an end except for God's rest. It has no ending. The rest of God is forever. They also said even though that Abraham and Israel failed to enter into it, it still remained available. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 speaks of the rest of the believer. The final rest we call the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. The state has a beginning, but it has no end. Just like the seventh day of creation, it's filled with light and there is no darkness whatsoever. This light does not come from the sun, but from God and His Son. The glorious thing about this is that those of us who have fought the good fight, have served Christ all our lives, will experience such a place. And Revelations chapters 21 and 22 deal with the fellowship that the believers have with God in the eternal state. John describes a complete transformation taking place. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the word new in the Greek actually means new in character. It means new in recently being made. God has moved with his energy of his almighty power and created a new heaven and a new earth, a fresh new start, especially designed for all those to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, to spend all eternity with him. Now the first thing we notice about this heaven is that it has no sea. So if you're a surfer, get in now because you won't be able to do it up there. There is no sea. Now the sea in the ancient world was always uh, a symbol of restlessness and chaos. It was considered a place from which evil arose out of. Isaiah the prophet said that, that, that the wicked was like a troubled sea. The apostle John said that the Antichrist rose up out of the sea. John makes it quite clear that there is no evil in the heavenly city that Christ has prepared for us. No longer do we need to chart the course of our lives upon the seas of unlimited evil. Chaos and uncertainty, all this will be swept away and we shall enter into a new world that contains the complete rest of God. In verse 2, John says that he sees the new Jerusalem descending from the presence of God. Now this new Jerusalem, he describes as a bride city. And Bible scholars identify this as the church, comprising of all the saints throughout all the centuries that are now prepared as a bride for Christ. 
You know, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 10 and 16, tells us that Abraham looked for a heavenly city whose maker was God. Was God. In John chapter 14 and verse 2 and 3, Jesus promised that he would go and prepare a place for us, which he describes as mansions. Now, the word mansions can also be translated as abiding places. And there are two wonderful promises flowing through these words. Some translators use the word mansions because they wanted to not only convey Jesus' assurance to us that there's more than ample room in heaven for those who believe, but by the word they were endeavoring to capture the hope that Jesus was imparting to his disciples. You see, the Jews always believed that there was an abiding place in God. This hope that Jesus offered was far greater than any of the Jewish prophets or rabbis could teach. Now the word abide, you'll find that John uses this quite a lot. It's one of John's favorite words. And in the Greek, it means it refers to an enduring relationship. It actually means to take up a permanent residence. It means to be settled. It means to make a place your home. And it refers to an intimate fellowship. Now, the word abide was used by a technical word by the rabbis. They said this, that when, when ten people came together and studied the Torah, which was basically the Old Testament and the first part of it, they said that something happened. They said that, that the Shekinah glory came down amongst those groups and filled it. The underlining principle that Christ is telling us that he's going to go to heaven and he's going to prepare a place for us with not only his presence there, but his glory abides amongst us forever. Then Jesus goes on in John 14, verse 3, and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now the word prepare is a very interesting word. It's the word used to describe preparing clothes. Preparing something special for you. There's nothing more uncomfortable than going a pair of shoes that are too tight or buying a shirt or blouse that's too tight. And this word prepare means to prepare something that is perfectly fitting who you are. So not only has Christ gone to heaven to prepare a place that's filled with his glory for us, but he's preparing a place that perfectly fits each one of us. A very, very special place. Now, in the Greek language, which John wrote the book of Revelation, there's a definite play on words. Now, John says here, he says that, uh, John, John hears a voice from heaven that says that God is going to prepare a place for him. He says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and I will dwell with them. Now, there's a definite play on words here. See, the words tabernacle and dwell in the Greek language sound very similar to the Hebrew word for glory, the glory of God, which is the word Shekinah. So when the readers in the early days read the book of Revelation, it said, Behold, God will bring a tabernacle that we will live in, in which he would dwell. Those two words would immediately seen in their minds the Shekinah glory of God. What we have here is a combination of the audio and the visual coming together. John, in his writings, is speaking of our hope in Christ. So when John's readers would have read these words, they would have seen the presence of God in their midst. 
However, there's a great difference between the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the tabernacle in heaven. In the Old Testament, the glory of God took on the form of a luminous cloud that came and went. But here in Revelation, there is no suggestion of a temporary dwelling of God's glory. From this point on, God remains forever with his people throughout all eternity. You know, here in this world, amidst life, though God is omnipresent, uh, our experience with him is spasmodic. In heaven, we will have a permanent experience of his presence. There will be an intimate bond between us and God that will last forever. John assures us that this wonderful union is not restricted to one nation or one ethnic group, but for all people. And the word people that's used here refers to all ethnic groups. You know, life is often filled with some very unexplained tragedies that cause us pain, sorrow and tears. A gentleman called Horatio Spafford was a Chicago lawyer in 1870. And he was known as a very peaceful and very kind man, yet he suffered almost unimaginable personal tragedies. Spafford's only son at the age of four died of scarlet fever. The Chicago Fire of 1871 all but bankrupted him and aware of the toll that these two disasters had taken upon his family, he decided that he would take his family to England for a holiday. Just as about to board the ship, a business adventure came along and he was, had to remain behind. His family wanted to stay with his no-no. He said, go on the boat and go across to England and I'll catch up to you later. Well, the ship set out to sail from New York. Nine days out from New York, it collided with an English vessel and sank in 12 minutes. The only, there were only two survivors, one was his wife and one other person. His four daughters perished in that collision. As soon as he heard the news, he got another ship and sailed to England to be with his bereaving wife. And as he was crossing across the Atlantic Ocean, the captain called him to the bridge. And he said these words. He says, careful reckoning has been made. He said, and I believe that we are now passing over the spot where, where the ship sank and your daughters are here. And the story says that Horatio Spafford was so overcome with emotion that he went down to his cabin, took out a pen and paper, and penned this wonderful hymn that we used to sing, which is, When sorrow like sea billows roll, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know, though life can be filled with many unexplained tragedies that cause us to experience great sorrow and pain, Christ has promised us a wonderful place, a place of hope where it will always be well with our soul. John goes on to tell us in this verse that there will be no more tears of sorrow or pain in the eternal state. Not only tears are gone, but also the vocal expression of sorrow or suffering, crying is gone. You know, it's possible to cry without tears. All that now robs life of all its vitality, we passed away. Jesus has prepared a place for us. Where, dear, where tears and death and sorrow and crying and pain no longer exist. All of this will be swept away and we will enter into a new world that contains the complete rest of God. 
You know, there are many TV shows today about renovations of old buildings, a block and so on. You may have seen them. Showing the emotional roller coaster ride of participants as they deal with the frustration and anxiety and final satisfaction and delight of not only completing the project, but receiving praise from their judges. Here we find in Revelation 21, verse 5 and 6, that emotional roller coaster experience of these participants is not for the saints of God. God Himself is the supreme architect and builder. He has prepared, what he has prepared for us is not a renovation of the old earth, but a brand new one. He says, behold, I make all things new. And again, this word new here means new in character, new in the sense of being recently made. Not only that, but God pronounces in verse 6, it is done. And the words carry with the concept that God sees the new heaven and the new earth as being complete and good and perfect. He, God, is perfectly, is completely satisfied that nothing is omitted. You know, man can design some splendid buildings. They're magnificent buildings that capture your imagination, that take your breath away, but they can never bring them to perfection. Whereas God's counsel will always bring to perfection whatever he says he will do. God assures John and us of the performance of such things by using his title. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And, and the words show that God is not only the source, initiator of all creator, but he's the one who guides it to its ultimate goal and con con conclusion, which is none other than the proper satisfaction of humanity's deepest spiritual needs. That is thirsting after the presence of God. God says to him who comes to him, he said, I will freely give from the abundance of the waters of life. And the word freely, he means to give something without deserving. You don't deserve it, it's a free gift. You know, Jesus spoke of the same thing. When the woman at the well, he sent these words to her. He said, whoever comes to me, will never thirst again. I will give them the living life. You know, Isaiah the prophet, some thousand years before Jesus Christ, prophesied these words. He said in Isaiah 12, verse 3, Therefore with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And on the Feast of Tabernacles, they used to sing this word, Therefore with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And they would take big jugs of water and pour it down over the steps. And what most people don't know is in John chapter 7, this was the event that was taking place in the background when Jesus said, He who comes, after, comes to me will never ever thirst again. And out of his being will flow rivers of living water. And here he's speaking of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out upon the church and prophesied in Acts chapter 2 as we see now in the churches today. For his first sermon and elementary preaching class, Lawrence, an African student, chose a text describing the joys that we shall see and receive when Christ returns and ushers us into heaven. And he said these words in his sermon in Bible class. He said, I've been in the United States for several months now, he began. I've seen the great wealth that's here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here, but I've yet to hear a sermon on heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches on heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, 
people have very little and we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. You know, it's so easy in our busy life and materialistic world to forget how much we need to stop and to read and to hear about this wonderful place called heaven that God has for us. Now the angel then transports John to a high mountain where he sees the bride, the Lamb of Christ coming, descending from the very presence of God. And he said it's like a city. This radiant with the Shekinah glory of God. And it's ablaze with all beautiful lights, reflecting all kinds of precious and rare stones. John describes the city as being like jasper and as clear as crystal. A great pastor by the name of Red, uh, Ray Stedman, uh, Stedman explains the difficulty that John has in trying to explain what he saw. He said, for John to explain what heaven was like to our human start, to, to us. It's like trying to explain the theories of relativity and quantum physics to a two-year-old. Have you tried that with your daughter? <laughs> Sitting down every day and trying. He said, because the words that we got, we just can't pick those words up. It's beyond our wildest imagination. And he says these words, around the city is built a great wall. The walls are obviously not for protection against the enemy, but rather they express the eternal security of the believer. We find that the foundations of the city are decorated with 12 precious stones. And some people have noticed that they're the same stones as the zodiac, except in reverse order. You know, it's not the powers uh, so in reverse order. All right, uh, I lost my place. It is not God that's put the stones in the reverse order but the powers of Satan that turn them around and use the sign of the zodiac to lead humanity away from God to destruction. It's only as humanity turns back to God that we'll find true life. Also, we have the Gentiles' hope. John sees a multitude of Gentiles worshipping God. The Greek word again for nation here means uh, every ethnic group. This saved multitude is from every ethnic group. John says they walk in the light which can only be Jesus Christ, by telling us that the pearly gates are never shut. John is telling us that there's no more enemy, no more evil that can threaten the eternal state. The power of Satan has been completely broken, and God has vanquished all evil. And also by saying the pearly gates are open, he's saying that all are welcome now into this place to accept Jesus Christ as Saviour. John goes on and says, there is no temple in this new city. The reason is that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, are the temple and the glory of God and the Lamb illuminated. Such unity between the Godhead makes the temple and the sun and the moon completely superfluous. You know, the Bible ends in the same place where it begins. Paradise. Genesis tells us about paradise that's lost. Revelation tells us about a new paradise regained. John now shows us some internal beauties of this heavenly city. 
First he says he sees a mighty river flowing through the city. He describes it as clear as crystal and it conveys the idea of sparkling radius and brilliance almost too bright for the eyes to look upon. You ever gone down to a river or a creek in late afternoon as the sun's setting and the rays come along and they bounce off the water and you've got to pull your eyes back. It's just too bright to look at. This is the description that's here. The phrase emphasizes the holy character of the city. It's free from all impurities. The river and the water are an emblem of life and a beautiful symbol of life and all its gladness and purity, activity, and goodness. Now, the source of the river is from the throne of God and the Lamb. Again, we see the perfect harmony between Jesus Christ and God. Now, you know, healing is a common longing for all humans around the world, not only for physical pain, but also for emotional pain. We all have experienced sickness, both physical and emotional, at one time or another. For some, there is never any relief from physical pain or emotional torment and distress. Healing is what we desire and long for whenever we're sick, suffering and pain, or we're emotionally broken. It is in this verse we find that there is no more pain and no more sickness in heaven. It's because the tree of life spans the great river and it bears 12 fruits every month of the year and the leaves bring healing. And the word healing that's used here is the word we get our word therapy from and it actually means health giving. The root meaning of the word is that of service or to minister, referring to the staff of a household or servants of a household. So these leaves seem to act like servants in a household bringing health and promoting good life in our lives. John tells us that there's no more curse. Why? Because the effects of sin have been completely removed. The blessed presence of God has completely removed the crushing weight of evil upon creation. John says these words, sorry, Paul says these words in Romans. He said in Romans chapter 8, he speaks of the earnest expectation that nature, God's creation, awaits the day when the curse will be lifted. Now, the word earnest expectation is a very interesting word. It actually describes scanning the horizon. And the word is this. When you're going to look at the horizon, you step forward like this, you lean forward on your tippy toes, and you do this. And so what Paul says, that all of creation is standing on its tippy toes, leaning forward into the horizon, waiting for the day when we shall be revealed as the sons of God. Scientists tell us that we do this, we focus our attention totally on one thing only. There's a story of the famous American evangelist in the 1870s by the name of D.L. Moody and who was speaking one day to a large, large group of people. And he said these words, one of these fine mornings, he said, you will read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? On that day, I shall be more alive than I've ever been before. Amen. You know, brothers and sisters, there's a day coming, a glorious day, a day of the resurrection, when we will stand before Christ looking upon his wonderful face with God's name on our forehead, acknowledging who we are, that we are his. And on that day, we shall be more alive than we've ever been before. 
John tells us that in the new city, there is neither sun or moon. And then he goes on and says, there are no candles, for the Lord God lights up the city. It always puzzled me. Why? He said there were no candles. I thought it was a strange thing. Until one day I was watching television and I saw something take place and it was about an archaeological dig in the city of Cologne in Germany. And in that dig they came upon a burial urn of a small child that was fully intact. And what was interesting about this burial urn was not only fully intact but on the side of it two small cups. At first they didn't know what they meant and so they did some research and did a chemical analysis and they found that the cups contained butterfat and wick. And they found by our research that what happened was that little child was placed in the urn and the two lights were lit and then it was placed inside a tomb in which the child was there. And... And the burning wick in the butterfat evidently symbolized eternal life and eternal light for the deceased. So by the word candle or lamp, John shows us the reality of our hope in Christian. Our faith is not embodied in a myth or a legend. It does not burn with the faint flicker of false hopes, but rather John sees by the Holy Spirit that we have a greater and brighter future. He sees a day when heaven and earth shall pass away, a day when we will stand not in the light of burning butterfat, but in the light of him, Jesus Christ, the lights, the light uh, of our candles our spirits of our souls for all eternity. John sees us in this eternal state, experiencing Christ, the light and life that was meant for all eternity. Amen. The discourse between the angel and John is suddenly in, in, interrupted. Jesus himself comes and states two things. First he says, Behold, I come quickly. And secondly, he pronounces a blessing upon those who keep the words of his prophecy and the words of the book. You know, there's often a misunderstanding about Christ's statement, Behold, I come quickly. And I want to explain it like this. Once a man asked the Lord what a million years was like. God, what is this like? And the Lord replied, My son... A million years is but a minute in my sight. Oh, the man said. How about a million dollars, the man asked. It can only mean just a penny to you. That's right, son. A million dollars is but a penny in my sight. Oh, the man said. Well, how about you give me a penny? To which the Lord replied, in a minute, my son. See, God's concept of time is totally different from ours. 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't say he was coming soon. He said he's coming quickly. And there's a vast difference between coming soon and coming quickly. The thought here is that once the events recorded in the book of Revelation begin to take place, they will happen in such quick succession that before you know it, Christ will arrive, deal with the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan, and all those that reject him. Now, I'll just tell you a story. A new preacher, fresh out of seminary, was preaching on this text in Revelation chapter 22. The words of Jesus, Behold, I come quickly. 
He was so nervous about delivering this first message that he hardly slept the night before. He was so nervous and so tired that he had to climb up this great big pulpit and he finally got there and, and, and opened up the text and he began to speak, but nerves began to overtake him. Now you learned a trick in Bible college. You may have seen Pastor Jonathan do this. And the trick is that if you forget what you speak about, repeat the last word. So he stood in the pulpit and, and said these words, Behold, I come quickly. His mind was blank. So he tried again. Behold, I come quickly. Still nothing. Finally he stood back. He rushed at the pulpit, knocked it over, came straight down, straight in the front of it, called out, Behold, I come quickly. And landed in the lap of this little old lady. He got up, flustered, and began to apologize about this. She said, that's all right, son, that's all right. It's really my fault. You warned me three times you were coming down, <laughs> and I should have got out of your way. You see, we often misunderstand what is taking place. In most Bibles, it's written in red. Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. And he states the purpose of his coming which is to reward everyone for their work. Then the Greek word for reward refers to what a person earns and deserves. And actually the word can be translated as wages. A wage is what a hired person has earned for work they've undertaken and therefore deserve it. However, sometimes what someone earns and deserves is not a wage. If a hired man steals from their employee, then, employer, then they deserve prison. And it should not be surprised that the Greek word for reward is a double-edged word, meaning both a negative and a positive. Now, Jesus states that he will reward everyone. And since Jesus doesn't identify all those whom he's speaking to, then everyone means everyone who's ever lived, everyone that will, has ever lived and died. Each one will face Christ in judgment. Now Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 to 11, speaks of the Christians appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. Now we must understand that this judgment seat is not the great white throne judgment at the end time, but rather the judgment of Christians' righteous deeds for determining their rewards. And that is particularly brought out by the fact that the judgment seat is also translated as what's called a beamer seat. And in every town in Greece, there was a raised platform a little higher than this, and it was called a beamer seat. And from this place, there were announcements made and, and things were passed down. But most importantly, it was a place where honour was given, particularly to athletes of Olympic Games. So they were called up and they were honoured and they were given. Now, just as the parents in ancient Greece would have been proud that their son had received recognition and glory for what they've done, so too Jesus Christ is proud to give to us the rewards for our faithful service, for him and what we have done for him. And this was Paul's motivation and also our motivation to continue to serve the Lord. Amen. We come to the closing verses here. The verse contains an ongoing invitation from the church and the Holy Spirit to all humanity. You know, every 25 years, the Catholic Church have what's called a year of jubilee.
pilgrims from all across the world travel to Rome. And I had the privilege of being in Rome in the year 2000, and they have special doors you go through, and if you go through them, you get your sins forgiven for 25 years. So I went through three doors, and so I'm, all my sins are forgiven until I'm 75. Then I'm going to do some crowd-raising money on Facebook so I can go there and get the next 25 done. But there's an interesting thing that takes place, and it's quite moving. You see the picture here of these people praying? If you go there on, on the year of Jubilee, pilgrims travel from all over the world. And they go to these great basilicas that are like cathedrals. And certain doors are open and, and there's a line of people, a couple of hundred long. And then going up these steps are these people kneeling. And they sit there and they kneel and they pray. And they move to the next step and they pray. And you'll see the steps are worn out. And they move to the next one and they pray. And as you sit there and look at it, it's such a moving thing to see. And what you begin to realize something more than anything else is the human desire to experience a loving and caring God. You know, the psalmist David says in Psalm 42, verse 1, he captures, and two, he captures the ache of every soul. He says, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. The psalmist takes an image straight from nature to convey how powerful his thirst is. And it's an image of a deer coming out of the forest of protection, out of the rocky mountains, exposing itself to all kinds of danger just to get a cool drink of water. Like that deer seeking the cool waters. And those pilgrims in Rome seeking God, David will go to any lengths to drink of the presence of God. The deer quietly drinking the water is a symbol of a soul seeking the daily refreshing and satisfaction that comes from the presence of God and his Son. To those who remain faithful, God has promised, not, uh, promised to give us not ordinary water, but water that springs from the water of life, flowing from the very throne of God to be enjoyed now. See, our hope is not a false hope. It's vibrant and alive. It's able to sustain and to strengthen the weakest soul. The invitation is not exclusive. In Revelations 20, verse 17, is open to all. It said, whosoever, let them take of the waters freely. See, Jesus is not satisfied just with an open house, but extends the glorious invitation to all. Jesus encourages all to come to him. You see, the invitation extends until time and history, as we know it, pass into eternity. No one any longer need to experience separation from Christ and fellowship with God. The waters are freely given. This is the missionary message of the church to the world. We proclaim this message until Jesus comes again. Here in Revelation 22, verse 20. Jesus testifies to the great truth that of his coming, which, will be the, which has been the main theme of the whole of the book of Revelation. Jesus tells us that he will come quickly. Not only do we have a promise of his coming, but a warning. Now the word quickly, he means swift, speedy, and uh, haste. The point is that, the, that our Lord is coming. And when he comes, he will come suddenly and without warning as a thief comes without announcement. John responds to this word of assurance. He says, Amen. And the word here means, so be it. I believe it. He echoes the promise of Christ. Yeah. Then I want you to notice that John adds his own prayer 
in this letter. And it's the prayer and desire of every believer. He says, even so, Lord Jesus, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The verse ends with an air of longing for the coming of Christ, to experience the fullness of Christ's presence, the fruits of eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth. The coming of Christ is a source of our continued hope, the joy of the church throughout all its troubles. It is upon his coming that our faith rests. Amen. We have a wonderful place called heaven, the eternal state prepared for each one of us who love him. We just stand and just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. We thank you for the book of Revelation that opens before us uh, the events that are uh, in the future. But also we thank you, God, for the encouragement that's set within this book, the hope of eternal life, the encouragement of us to share the gospel. Father, we thank you for an eternal place that you have set before us. And Father, Lord, we also pray as John, Lord, come soon. But God, we also pray that, as Jonathan even spoke to before, that many others would come into the kingdom of God. Lord, use this in some small way that other people may find Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Awesome. Thank you very much, Dr.